0: on RTHK.
1: Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Anna Fenton and me, Jim Gould. Um, in a moment, we're going to be talking about the upcoming chief executive election after Carrie Lam's announcement that she won't be seeking another term. Um, just before we get to that topic and uh, before we introduce uh, the two guests uh, that we have lined up to discuss it, uh, um, just continuing from uh, COVID update before the break, I, I'd like to thank uh, our two guests. Uh, we ran out of time just before nine o'clock, but uh, thanks to uh, Dr. 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 Vijay Danisakaran, Associate Professor at the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health. And thanks also to Dr. Sarah Borwine. She's a family doctor who studied infectious disease epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, I also have a um, a quick email that I'd uh, like to read from uh, listener Alonzo, who says um, So, in the past four days, since the government lifted its flight bans, it has already already placed six of those airlines back in the sin bin. I don't know whether to laugh or cry at this absurd situation. This has directly impacted my family members who, like thousands of other Hong Kongers, fled Hong Kong in the past year and have been effectively forced to stay away because of the government's nonsensical and economy-destroying quarantine rules. My family's return flights have now been cancelled by Qatar, leaving them once again in the lurch. Given that all passengers have to show that they tested negative, prior to flying. Here's my question. Assuming that the airlines can present documentation to prove that all passengers complied with all pre-flight COVID requirements, why are the airlines being penalised? Surely it's not the airline's fault if a passenger who was negative prior to flying is positive on arrival. Um, That from Alonso. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I'm just turning our attention now to our backchat topic uh, for this morning. Uh, we're joined by John Burns, Emeritus Professor and Honorary Professor of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, and Alan Lung, Co-Convenor of the Path of Democracy. Um, good morning to you both. Um, perhaps uh, John Burns first, uh, we heard you uh, on the news uh, just now saying uh, uh, Carrie Lam's decision not to uh, seek a second term uh, was no surprise. Um, how would you assess overall her time in office and her performance?
0: Well, of course, uh, she started out, in my view, with great promise. I remember those days. But then the last four years, I think, have, um, have shown some uh, problems, I guess, with her ability to lead Hong Kong. Here we are now with Hong Kong deeply divided, deep uh, mistrust of the government, hundreds in prison, a huge spike in emigration, civil society and the media hollowed out. All of these things that are related to the 2019 um, decision by the government to push forward with an anti-extradition bill. And then there's covid I would have to say that she managed COVID initially well. We we went through much of 2020, um, you know, uh, with it relatively well managed. However, between the fourth and the fifth wave, the government dropped the ball. It did not ramp up vaccination rates or build isolation and quarantine capacity, the things that they need to do. So this is a very mixed picture. We have to look at her legacy of 42 years of service, I agree, Um, but the last four years have been difficult for her, difficult for Hong Kong, and many, many problems. In addition to that, I would say that Carrie Lam has left the position of chief executive itself hollowed out with much less freedom of maneuver than when she took over this position.
2: How and in what way is she responsible for that rather than edicts coming from Beijing?
0: Well she is responsible for initiating and pursuing directly and forcefully the anti extradition bill in, you know, January to June twenty nineteen, and she is also responsible for accepting inadequate political risk analysis in exco provided by the secretary for justice and the secretary for security so
2: what, what you do know, you mean you know, by that the, the, what Professor? happened
0: in 2019 is is co-produced it isn't simply one side
2: what do you mean by inadequate advice from the secretary for security
0: i mean they did not understand the depth of discontent in Hong Kong when they pursued the, the, continued to pursue this. I'm not talking about the justice or the whether it is the right thing to do. I'm talking about the politics of it. As we know, political leaders need to compromise. They need to understand when to move forward and when to retreat, see why loans did this uh, with the national and moral education at the very beginning of his term, let us remember. This, this kind of political capacity, we don't see in Carrie Lam.
2: Hmm. Well, if you remember, he also um, pushed her to the fore in the 2014 uh, umbrella movement, didn't he? She became very much the front man of that and uh, gave a pretty good account of herself, I think, if I remember rightly.
0: Yes, yes, of course, I would agree. So I've focused on the last four years when she was uh, CE, and especially the period from 2019
2: until now. Mm. So, one so thing- I, I
0: agree with you, it's 42 years. Yeah. And 42 years of dedicated service, absolutely, it's uh, clear she is an excellent administrator, she understands the bureaucratic process very well, she perseveres. But politically, she is and was out of her depth.
2: Right. So if we, if we just quickly go back to 2019 and the extradition bill, once she'd said the bill is dead and then withdrew it, I think we all expected things to calm down, but they didn't. So what does that tell us about the role of the extradition bill? Was it just the spark that lit a fire that was already smouldering? Or what was going on there?
0: I think you could say that it was the spark. There was deep discontent in the community. And so you have to understand this discontent, I believe. And it's left us with, you know, uh, massive um, distrust of uh, of the government. And this is a terrible way to have to govern Hong Kong. So according to the Chinese youth, Polls, only 21 or 22% of the people trust the government. This is terrible. This is a legacy of Carrie Lam. Mm.
1: Um, Alan Lung, good morning to you. Morning. Morning. Alan Lung, co-convener of the Path of Democracy. Uh, uh, were you surprised at Mrs. Lam's announcement?
3: Well, uh, since uh, Omicron, uh, that wasn't a surprise. We were we were pretty sure that she, she was going to run, run again. Because we actually met her in, in her office, and I asked question to, and then my 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 answer was, uh, well, you have, you've got your answer already. She was going to run, and then uh, she said she she has uh, announced her intention to uh, officials in Beijing when she visited, so that that might have changed late much later.
2: So, Alan, we've heard many names in the last few months, uh, starting, you know, the rumor mill's been busy, hasn't it? We've had Margaret Chan, the ex-WHO boss. We've had uh, sort of an outsider, Laura Cha, former head of the stock exchange. Her name's been bandied about. We've had Bernard Chan, but, of course, I believe he's a Thai citizen, so that would rule him out. Uh, Then we've got Paul Chan, the financial secretary. Um then we've had Chris Tang, former police chief, and he's not been he's not a fancied runner. And then I think we've got um Mr. Lee. John Lee is now the name in the frame. So how do you read all this?
3: Well, uh I think John Lee will will announce today uh, that she will resign and then run for chief executive. Uh that is as far as as we know from uh Chinese newspaper uh public sources. That that is certain, um, we, but you cannot conclude that she's he's going to be the chief executive until the end of the uh, the nomination period, which is about ten. Eleven days to go, or something.
1: Are you expecting a contest? Because it has been suggested that perhaps the central government uh, might prefer, if there wasn't one, in order to, you know, um, maintain well, that, a degree that, of, uh, ha- you know, harmoniousness.
3: That, that was the only one candidate. The so-called Macau model was, was mm-hmm. the ongoing speculation too. But everything's remained a, a speculation until <laughs> things happen. And uh, my, my reading is there's, there may be a second, second, uh, second candidate and names, names mentioned, uh, at least one or two are, are, are feasible. I mean, uh, Laura Cha being a, a, uh, very experienced. She was vice minister rank. She was, uh, uh D- deputy minister rank you know, of China, not of Hong Kong. And then very experienced in running the financial market in China. And she actually brought the, uh, brought the uh, regulatory system of Hong Kong into, into Mainland China, so very, very well politically connected and very suited for running uh, Hong Kong uh, expertise in running Hong Kong as the financial, International Financial Centre, which is a very important thing.
1: Mm. She's, but, she's perhaps not as high she... profile as some of the other uh, names that have been mentioned so in, in, in public terms. You know
3: chan is very high profile too yeah. and he fits the uh, the uh the 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 profile of you know on the financial field uh he's been in government too uh and a legislator so that that is a very good profile as well so uh, a contested election might be a good thing you know uh we have to look forward and we cannot look backward uh 2019 we all know that uh, we, we all know the mistakes were made We all know, I I know last time I interviewed uh, uh, Professor John Burns and uh, Professor Burns actually wrote a book, Government Capacity in the Hong Kong Civil Service, a long, 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 long time ago. So he knows everything there is to know about Hong Kong's uh, problem in the civil service. So it's a process-oriented government now that we have no specific goals. Like you know, that you've been discussing uh, the COVID thing is confusion because there's no goal. You know, what is the goal? So this is what we we need to look forward to in in the next government, uh, set goals and get it properly executed. Which Hong Kong as our government is actually very very good at execution.
2: Execution, that's an unfortunate word, isn't it, really? So, (laughs) Professor Burns. Yeah,
3: yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, execution, implementation. (laughs) Implementation, (laughs) like the word.
2: So, Professor Burns, if we could go back to you for a moment. We still have the sort of rather uncomfortable situation of many people like um, uh, Claudia Moe and people who are still, um, you know, behind bars. This is slightly awkward, isn't it? How, How is this going to be dealt with going forward, do you think?
0: Um yes, it's more than slightly awkward. I mean, some people have said that Hong Kong needs uh, reconciliation, and probably in the longer term it does. but we now have we have the government relentlessly pursuing people for violations of the law that occurred years ago um, with and this is not the kind of an uh, environment when reconciliation is possible. So, yes, Claudia Moe and so many others, somebody that I've been writing to, uh, will be released on uh, the 11th if there's no, uh, nothing additional comes up. Um, I, it, it's more than awkward. It is... Um, a reminder in the face of the community daily because of the arrests and trials and jailing and all of this kind of thing, and a a reminder daily that the government is holding the citizens of Hong Kong to account for 2019, but it itself is not accountable.
2: Because these people aren't charged in many cases and we also have the added complication that the courts are currently closed. So this yeah, exactly, is in a, in a giant exactly. holding so, pattern. So,
0: I mean, they've been in prison for more than a year. Yeah. And, uh, if you talk about the without... Without...
2: Um, no charge.
0: out charge, yes. And so the, you're talking about the 47 yeah. and 30-some-odd 30, 30 of them are still in prison with no bail. I think this is totally outrageous. And I must say I do not understand this because um, I'm not a lawyer, but if you look at the if you look at what they're actually charged with, I mean many of these things appear to have been allowed under the basic law. I mean, but if you're running in a political campaign don't you seek power? And if you get power, don't you seek to um, to uh, follow the law, which allows these kinds of uh, maneuvers. So, if if the central government doesn't like these maneuvers, change the basic law.
1: Um, okay, we've got a comment. Uh, I think from, to be to
3: yeah. be fair to uh, to to the process, they've have, they, the forty-seven have actually been charged.
2: Uh, there have, are charges have they? Against when radio. when were they charged?
3: They were charged. What's holding that them up is the process again, uh, because they have problem coordinating. You know the the, the trial of forty seven people, all in one trial. That is a problem. Again, you have you have process that's upsetting the uh, images of Hong Kong and not you know fixing that. Okay. You can imagine the court has problem has to uh, to handle the uh, the, the coordinate forty seven. Cases in one trial—that is the problem—and and with no regard to uh, the perception of of Hong Kong would would be perceived as uh, the, the rule of law image and so on. And of course, there's no no bail because the habeas corporate doesn't work in in uh, national security law. But that is the the problem we're facing. We we, did, we didn't choose that; that was imposed on us.
2: Right. And just staying with the legal question for a moment, one for for either or both of you, is that the government is now proposing that exam, special exam rooms will be set up in Penny's Bay for kids suffering from COVID to take the, I think it's called the DSE exams, quite soon. I think it's the 22nd of April. And there's talk of there being security cameras installed in the rooms while they're taking their exams. Is that legal? Well,
3: everything is legal under emergency law. But uh, there are practical reasons for that. If I think the uh, if you if you look into the minds of civil service, they don't they, they, they don't want to be accused of causing a death if they suddenly fall in the, in the exam or suddenly faint So they have to be watched. And in normal situation, they're, they're watched too by uh, by ex, uh, examine, examiners and so on. So there's no no question of legal or not legal. Is it's just that I think the, uh, to be fair, the uh, Education Bureau has done everything it can already without, you know, sort of almost kicking them them out of the exam.
2: Would, would, if it was your kid, would you be happy with your child who's sick doing an exam with no one present with security cameras only supervising?
3: Well, my kids went through that as well uh, Hong Kong system and uh, he's in the university now and he's, he's actually finished a a a medical medical degree in the UK now but uh, they are adults already
2: uh, but they're would not you kids. would you be happy with your kid in that situation I'll, I'll
3: be, I'll, frankly I'd be quite happy with the uh, with this uh, arrangement that they are being watched uh, they're being isolated if covid zero is the strategy you have to look at that as well. OK.
1: Um, just to clarify, Anna, about that uh, the issue of... Yeah, the 47 have been charged uh, with the uh, conspiracy to commit subversion. Right. Yeah.
0: When G- was that... Jim, talk? I think there was some dispute about the charges, though. That's why we're having this discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, th- I think it was... There were charges, and then these were disputed, and so it stuck in this... Um,
3: you
2: know, a COVID mm. fog. Mm. COVID fog. Yes. <laughs> I think the legal
3: community is quite vocal about not being able to report uh, the reporter, not they cannot report on anything of this uh, national security thing, which is again not not the normal thing we Hong Kong do.
1: Mm. Okay, um, a couple of emails. Uh, Well, in fact, this is a message on our Facebook. Uh, TC writes, um, imagine an official in mainland China with a track record like hers. Uh, Do you think that he, she can complete their mandates? The HKCE is the only job in the world that I can think of where the office holder is prohibited from resigning, Uh, from TC. And uh, Hugh writes, uh, I find it most telling that in all the years since the handover, we have not been fortunate enough to have a competent CE. What does this say about about Hong Kong's self-governing ability. What fundamental resources are missing here? Someone like Carrie should never have been in the running. A very capable bureaucrat, but no leadership qualities whatsoever. Perhaps it's all to Beijing's advantage, because they can now just appoint their representative, as we've been shown up to be wanting. Yes. Um, does uh, Hugh have a point there? Um, does, do, do we need a chief executive with more acknowledged uh, leadership skills, can we say, than, uh, than um, Carrie Lam is regarded as having? Um, wh- wh- what do you think, uh, Alan Lung?
3: Well, leadership is, is, is a sort of a wonderful thing, which is almost lacking in Hong Kong since the fall for, on the first chief executive, who is uh, very loyal, very, you know, nobody say, will say bad things about C.H. Tong, and he's a very dedicated person, and, uh, but she, he doesn't. Have, he didn't have the the uh, the, uh, the the uh, political experience, and with with a very bureaucrat, a second chief executive, and then a politician from outside of government, and then a bureaucrat again. I mean, that tells you that that I mean, leadership is something that Hong Kong people are not trained. Uh, we're not. We we have very good professionals. Financial professional, medical professional, and so on. But we we don't really know how to run ourselves. You know, so so we have to blame ourselves too. That, and um, of course, we can blame brain the Brits for not, you know, teaching us how to how to be in politics. But, you know, not teaching us political skill. But that is understandable. That that the colonial power doesn't want to leave people uh, revolting against them. So politicians is, is a, politician is a thing. Uh, there are dangerous people, so they should not be encouraged. In fact, when I was I was young, since primary school, early secondary, we were told study and stay out of politics. And I was one of the few, you know, people in my generation amongst my my fellow fellow uh, students who took an interest in studying uh, from uh, to uh, nineteen eighty nine got into the Hong Kong Democratic Foundation and took an interest in how Hong Kong should be run.
2: So so you're saying really that we can produce administrators but not politicians, is that what you're saying?
3: For the moment. (laughs) Uh, They have yet to emerge. And I hope the... uh, 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 We have no choice. We have have to... We need people who not just understand Hong Kong, how to run Hong Kong. We have an international... uh, Audience, the international international community to sort of take care of, and then once the chief executive take care of the local, uh, how to run Hong Kong locally, make the international community happy with Hong Kong because we are an international financial center. Then Beijing, they have to please make sure that uh, Beijing likes what he, he or she is doing too. That is not an easy task. That is a really, really difficult task for uh, a head who really doesn't have uh, the full sovereign power of the Singapore Prime Minister.
2: So they're a bit more like what we would consider a mayor of a city, aren't they, rather than a governor? No, no, no,
3: no, 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 that's not true. Hong Kong chief executive has much more power than the mayor of Shanghai or even the party secretary of Shanghai. The party secretary of Shanghai doesn't have uh, some foreign policy power which the Hong Kong Chief Executive has under the basic law. So that is written in the basic law already. Of course, with permission of the central government, they have sort of some uh, limited uh, foreign policy power which I don't think the Hong Kong IJR government understands
2: yet. Professor, yeah, Professor yeah, Jones.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah, so I have a
0: little bit of a different view. I don't think it's so much a leadership problem. There's different kinds of leadership. We need leaders with political skills. Now, we do have politicians who know how to win elections in Hong Kong. None of them are ever considered for this position. I think this is deliberate. This is the the Chinese Communist Party telling us that no, we do not want people who, can, who have the capacity to mobilize. Regina Yip, Jung Il Singh, these people are never um, put in this kind of a position. Our politicians, which we have, you know, some that n- know exactly what's required, our politicians, however, never have the opportunity to gain power. And this is a structural problem. This is the design of our institutions. They're in LegCo, and LegCo does not become, um, you know, the government. So I think there are structural reasons why we're unable to do this, but also the central government does not value these political skills, and I think this is to the detriment of Hong Kong.
1: So who would you think would be a front runner to be the next CE?
0: Uh, I I prefer not to use front-runner. The the whole notion of it as a race is kind of ridiculous. I mean, you know, the central government is going to tell the election committee today who the new leader will be, and then they will endorse it on May 8th. I think uh, if I were, you know, I would choose Regina Yip or Jong-il Singh. These two people know what is required. They have uh, great political skills. They, uh, but you know, they are never mentioned, and the party will have nothing to do with them as CE. They're dangerous in a sense because they can—they have the capacity to mobilize, and the, uh, the, they understand what's required. The Communist Party does not want a leader like that uh, in Hong Kong. Do you think? That,
1: do you think there'll be a contest? An no, open contest.
0: <laughs> I do not. More than one I candidate. Mean, uh, uh, not a real contest.
2: So I'm we'd have um, the designated loser concept. I'm not
0: saying there couldn't be somebody <laughs> else, but I'm saying the, the central government is preparing us to accept John Lee as the next CE, and that decision will be endorsed on May 8th.
1: Okay. Okay, well, um, on that note, uh, thanks very much, to, for speaking to us on the programme this morning. That was uh, John Burns, uh, Emeritus Professor and Honorary Professor of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. And thanks also to Alan Lung, co convener of the Path of Democracy. Um, a quick uh, email to read out here uh, to do with the uh, flight suspensions, the latest uh, flight suspensions. So Richard writes um, as an airline pilot in Hong Kong uh, many in my industry, including myself, are at our wit's end. I'm sure in other industries that have been decimated. There are similar feelings. It seems that the many people who have not had the same Covid experience as us have no idea what damage it's doing to people's lives, e.g. civil servants and government officials, etc., etc., and the list is large. Enough is enough. We are at our wits' end. That from